I believe the more we know about history, the more our lives make sense. Oftentimes I get frustrated about why things are the way they are. But when I find out the history, especially the, my African-American history, then some of the dots are connected. We can be part of a big story and not even know it. Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons is a perfect example. During her research for the book, Wilkerson interviewed more than 1,000 people who made the migration from the south to northern and western cities. Interesting enough, many of the people who Wilkerson encountered who moved during the time between 1915 and 1970 had no idea they were even part of the great migration of six million people. Sometimes they would say, even say, well, I migrated from Texas to Los Angeles in 1947. Would that mean I'd be a part of it? And that would mean they were right smack in the middle of it. But they didn't see themselves as that, partly because these decisions were individual, individual personal decisions, she says. In some ways, to me, that was one of the most inspiring and powerful things about the great migration itself. There was no leader. There was no one person who set the date who said, on this date, the people will leave the South. They left on their own accord for as many reasons as there are people who left. They made a choice that they were not going to live under the system in which they were born anymore. And in some ways, it was the first step that the nation's servant class ever took without asking. She calls the movement the Overground Railroad. They were making a way out of nowhere. There's a poster in my office at Union Presbyterian Seminary that has been with me since I was a student there, and it goes with me everywhere I go. When I can't see my way clear, when I am confused about what to do next, when I don't know which way to turn, this is one of my go-to passages. It is Isaiah 43:19. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. This evening I want to speak about another movement that started before the Civil War and has a legacy that continues today. In honor of Black History Month, I want to take a few minutes to talk about the Black Women's Club movement, women who made a way out of no way. The history of enslaved black women in, Africa, in, in America reveals abuse, exploitation, separation, and suffering. But they use their resources of Christianity, biblical imagery, the spirituals, African traditions, mother wit, and language to survive, to develop self-esteem, to protect themselves, and to speak the truth. These enslaved black women developed survival strategies in spite of oppression and marginalization in order to save their families and their people. The insular character of slave life prompted an inherent sense of community. Enslaved women created a support network to sh share life responsibilities, such as childcare, healthcare, and religious ceremonies. This mutual association with each other created a strong network among black women that extended into life after slavery. After emancipation and the Freedmen Bureau's dissolution, Many Northern philanthropies also withdrew their assistance, forcing the Southern black community into autonomy. Black women, from the combined resources of tradition, instinct, and necessity, 
rose to the challenge to create the institutions desperately needed within their communities. They joined together in clubs, societies, and associations to face their newfound freedom and forge their way into the white male-dominated world. This period in history, some historians identify as 1890 to 1930, is referred to as the Black Women's Club Movement. Together, these women quietly fought for reform as they combated stereotypes and sought to uplift one another. The overarching aim of black women's clubs was to elevate the social standings of their race through personal betterment. The character of the clubs ranged from benevolent to literary societies. The more radical of the women's groups spoke out against lynching and sexual abuse. Some of the more familiar leaders who were part of this movement were Mary Church Terrell, Nanny Hughes Burroughs, Anna Julia Cooper, Ida B. Wells, and Mary McLeod Bethune. The event that scholars marked as the beginning of the movement was the emergence of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, NACW, in 1896. The NACW predated the formation of the National Association of Colored People by 15 years. The early establishment of the NACW illustrates the strong conviction of black women to serve their community. The significance of NACW cannot be underestimated, as it afforded a rallying cry and a network of support for the female African-American community across the country. In 1897, Mary Church Terrell, the first president of the organization, addressed the NACW members, stating, we have become national because from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from Maine to the Gulf, we wish to set in motion influences that shall stop the ravages made by practices that sap our strength and preclude the possibility of advancement. We call ourselves an association to signify that we have joined hands one with the other to work together in a common cause. We proclaim to the world that the women of our race have become partners in the great firm of progress and reform. We refer to the fact that this is an association of colored women because of our peculiar status in this country seems to demand that we stand by ourselves. Our association is composed of women because the work we, which we hope to accomplish can be done better by mothers, wives, daughters, and sisters of the race. We refer to the fact that this is an association of colored women because of our peculiar status in this country seems to demand that we stand by ourselves. The plight of poor and migrating black women who landed on in the hostile streets of Detroit and Cleveland and Chicago and Philadelphia and New York and other northern and middle western cities motivated settled black matrons to open working girls homes training schools for the domestic arts, and other group help agencies to rescue them from sexual exploitation, prostitution, and poverty. They brought the knowledge of how to organize and build community. Indeed, in many communities, black women's service and sacrifice, visions and dreams, proved essential to group survival and racial progress. Either through the agency of their clubs or as the bedrock of the black church, black women were able to redress the often harsh consequences of migration by operating nurseries and kindergartens for children of working mothers or maintaining job registries to help young single women find domestic service positions. 
black women were often just as concerned about helping and educating black boys as girls. These women played pivotal roles in erecting an infrastructure of social welfare agencies, community, community institutions such as penny banks and credit unions, as well as political organization and cultural programs. They made a way out of no way. The black women did not necessarily worship in the same church or denomination and are not necessarily members of the same organization. But as Mary Church Terrell expressed beautifully, we must care for ourselves and rear our families like all women, but we have more to do than other women. Those of us fortunate enough to have an education must share it with the less fortunate of our race. We must go into our communities and improve them. We must go out into the nation and change it. Above all, we must organize ourselves as Negro women and work together. All of the African-American sororities were part of that movement. At Howard University in Washington, D.C., my sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, was founded in 1908, Delta Sigma Theta in 1913, Zeta Phi Beta, who is celebrating their centennial this year, was 1920, and Sigma Gamma Rho was founded at Butler University in Indiana, 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 Indianapolis, Indiana in 1922. All of the sororities have a strong community focus but I did not know we were part of the black women's club movement. In the movement, the clubs, the sororities, the organizations had particular interests, but the overarching mission was the uplift of the African-American community. The oldest act active African-American women's club in the United States is the United Order of Tents, headquartered in Norfolk, Virginia. It has been active for 153 years, and older if you consider their participation in the Underground Railroad. In 1867, Annette Lane of Norfolk and Harriet Taylor of Hampton, both formerly enslaved women, found the clandestine Christian African-American women's organization, the United Order of Tents of J.R. Giddings and Jolliffe Union. The mission of the tents before the Civil War was to free the slaves. The word tents refers to the actual shelter sought by, sought by escapees on their path to freedom. After the Civil War, the tents mission was to serve their race to clean, feed, and provide nursing care whenever necessary. Lane taught the young ladies about Christianity, cleanliness, morals, conduct, and various means of survival as free human beings. In 1897, the founding chapter in Norfolk, Virginia, Lydia Number 1, established Rest Haven Home for Adults in Hampton, Virginia for their aging members. When the members of the tents did not fill the 16-bed facility, other men and women in need were taken in. For over 105 years of operation, Rest Haven was subsidized by donations from tent members and was debt-free upon its closing in 2002. Today, the tents have housing for elderly in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, and Norfolk and Danville, Virginia. They made a way out of nowhere. And we need to know that they are and what they did in order to continue the work. And let me tell you why. Walking back from the family cemetery at a family reunion in 2014, a cousin told me that members of my mother's side were charter members of a tent chapter in Norfolk. My sister found among my father's papers a 1991 program of an annual celebration of that particular tent chapter. I found out that in 1896, Elizabeth Harris Cuffey organized the True Love Tent Number no. 37, 
along with her four sisters, Sophie, Josephine, Hester, and Julia, and the founder of the tents, Annette Lane, installed the officers. Hester was my great-grandmother. I was stunned speechless when I realized that when I had the vision of the Daughters of Zalofahad, a transitional program for homeless mothers and children, I was continuing a legacy that was started 102 years earlier by my ancestors, and I did not know it. If I had been aware of the Black Women's Club movement and my great-grandmother and her sisters 22 years ago when I started DAWs, would it have made a difference? Maybe, maybe not. One thing is for certain, I didn't know I was part of a history and a legacy that began with enslaved and free women before the Civil War. There were over 300,000 free women's clubs in the North in 1830, many of them documented. But because of slavery in the South, there were very little recordings of history. But Maggie Walker was not the only woman in Richmond, and Annette Lane and Harriet Taylor were not the only women in Norfolk and Hampton that were part of the black women's club movement. There were other organizations that existed, and some still exist today, that we don't know about. Dr. Katie Cannon had two things that she often repeated to her students. The first is, if, it's in, if it isn't written down, it doesn't exist. And the other is, when an elder dies, a whole library burns to the ground. She urged us to write it down, whatever it is, so it will not be forgotten. I will close with this story of Ada Harris, an educator in Indianapolis, who illustrates one of the special forms of individual giving and self-help leadership provided in a local community. In 1909, Indianapolis Star article heralded Harris as the leader of the reclamation of Norwood, a small, impoverished, all-black settlement situated on the outskirts of the town. The settlement acquired a bad reputation from the crap gains and the prostitution rings that allegedly flourished in the area. Harris, well aware of Norwood's shortcomings, nevertheless moved into the community. She had taught school in the area since the late 1880s. By 1909, Harris was not only a resident of Norwood, but principal of the local school. She made a way out of no way. She insisted that her greatest ambition was to serve her people. She explained her inspiration for organized by simply saying, I want to see my people succeed. I want them to have an equal chance. Jesus tells the righteous they will be blessed because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. The righteous were puzzled and said to him, when did we do that? And he said, whenever you did for one of these, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Amen.